We thank you, God, for your word that we aren't uh, rudderless in our lives uh, here on earth, but that we have a foundation and that we have revealed truth, that you've made yourself known, your way known, uh, your reality known, your heart known uh, through uh, the scriptures as we have it. We thank you for that. We ask that as we read and study and listen, that you would give us uh, ears that are good to hear and eyes that are good to see and hearts that are fertile soil for the planting of your word. I pray then ask as my words are true to your word that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way, shape, or form from your word, may they be quickly and ever forgotten. Amen. So last Sunday morning, we celebrated communion together, as is our practice here uh, once a month, usually the first Sunday of the month. And in preparation for celebrating communion last Sunday, uh, also known communion as the Lord's Supper and some traditions, the Eucharist, going all the way back to the first century as the love feast. In preparation for celebrating that meal or that sacrament or that mystery together, we opened up the book of Acts and saw in chapter 20, maybe the earliest reference in the scriptures to the celebration of this breaking of bread in Jesus' name or in Jesus' way. Recounting what Jesus did with his 12 disciples on the night that he was betrayed and what Jesus instructed his disciples to do together after he departed, uh, after he was taken from them. We talked last week a little about the mechanics of doing what Jesus told his disciples then to do and also how we have tried or attempted the best we can to continue to do what he called them and us still to do today. And we talked about different churches and different Christians and different Christian traditions, how uh, they have understood what happens. Everything okay? Something fell? As long as it's something and not someone, I guess, uh, that's okay. Uh, we talked about different, different uh, traditions and different uh, understandings of how all of that works, how communion works, uh, what that means, what when we eat bread, drink the cup of the vine, uh, how we're to understand that. Uh, and as part of that unpacking last Sunday, I touched for a moment on the idea of union with Christ, something we don't and haven't ever really talked a lot about, but union with Christ in celebrating the Lord's Supper, communion. And if you weren't here last Sunday, you're welcome to, uh, and if you want to go down that trail a little bit more, you're welcome to uh, dial that up on our uh, website or our podcast and uh, uh, kind of go back and pick that up. This morning, though, I want to take a different track on a similar theme, this whole thing about union with Christ and how it really is all over the scriptures. And it's a really important idea, union with Christ. And to that end, I want to begin this morning in chapter 15 of John's gospel, uh, chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, the latter part of John's gospel, uh, um, make up this long section of Jesus talking that's called Jesus' farewell address, uh, just after the Last Supper, after he's washed his disciples' feet, again on the night that he was betrayed. Uh, so listen closely, John chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, uh, this is the word of God spoken through the Son of God, Jesus. I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. There it is. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. 
If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And so clearly a major theme, if not the major theme in this passage, in these words, is bearing fruit. The picture is of a vineyard. Jesus' father is the gardener, and Jesus himself is the vine. The branches are those who are in Christ, a phrase that we noted last week the Apostle Paul uses 216 times in his letters in the New Testament. And yes, the seemingly primary thrust of this passage is bearing fruit, spiritual fruit, kingdom fruit, maybe also what we might call relational fruit. But there's this other curious term in these verses, a term that occurs eight times, beginning at verse 4. Remain in me, and as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And that word remain can be translated in a variety of ways from Greek into English. Some English versions of the Bible have for that word remain, abide. Other English versions, reputable, common versions, have the word dwell. Abide in me as I abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. Dwell in me as I also dwell in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must dwell in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you dwell, live, make your home, set up your habitat in me. So too many of us grew up, uh, I think those of us who grew up in the church of the Christian faith, grew up with the uh, understanding primarily uh, that the Christian faith or following Jesus or being a Christian involved making a decision, believing the right things, assenting to a certain set of beliefs, going to church on Sunday morning or to youth group on Tuesday evening or to Bible study on Monday night or to BSF on Wednesday morning. But Jesus seems to be talking here about something completely different, about a relationship or a union he goes over and over and over talking about being in, remaining, dwelling, abiding in each other. But Jesus uh, goes into this at great, great length over and over and over as if people aren't getting the point, as if they don't have the categories for this kind of understanding of life with Jesus in Jesus. And I honestly, I, I didn't get this growing up. I didn't pick up on it. I didn't get it. I didn't receive it. It wasn't a part of my understanding. I heard more than once that uh, we were supposed to invite Jesus into our hearts. But that was it. Sort of once we did that, said that prayer, made that, took that action, that was it. It was over. No one ever talked about Jesus remaining. No one talked about Jesus abiding within us, or us in him, or Jesus dwelling in us, or us dwelling in him. This union, last week we call it a mystical 
union. This was just one of the things that I had never, I never picked up growing up in the church. Maybe because people weren't talking about it. Maybe because I just didn't have ears to hear. Maybe I wasn't mature enough or wasn't at the right stage or age or in a, the right state. I don't know. Maybe there was something in me that simply was closed off to such. Maybe there's something in us or you today that's closed off to that idea. And maybe correctly designating the reason for years ago that gap in understanding or experience isn't what we really need to get into today or delve into, but rather, where do we go from here? And where that gap has been, how to bridge that gap and close that gap in each of our lives. Many of us were taught different theories of atonement. You may have picked up on different theories of atonement, how Jesus atoned for our sin or made atonement for us before God the Father. In growing up or in your Christian life, we're told that God is just and he requires justice to be done. Someone had to die for our transgressions and sins and God arranged for Jesus to do that on a cross, on his cross, on the cross, or a penalty had to be paid. Paid to who? Paid to the devil? A ransom had to be made. Jesus was that ransom, or Jesus was the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Jesus was like the sacrificial lamb or bull or bird or offering before God for our sins. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or Jesus died and so conquered death, and so he was victorious over death. That's how our sins were atoned for. That's how we're reconciled to God. Jesus crushed Satan. He won. And we're the beneficiaries of that death. And all of those things are true. You may have heard those. You may have grown up on those. You may have prayed those. You may have understood those. They're true according to the scriptures, different ways of explaining what God did for us. But what they don't tell us, at least explicitly, is why. Is why God did what God did. But there's a place in the scripture that talks about the why. Sort of buried in the middle of Matthew's gospel. And you're familiar with these words because they're highlighted but never deeply unpacked. Once in the Gospels, we're told about Jesus' heart. Once in the Gospels, Jesus talks about his own heart. Once in the Gospels, and only once in all four Gospels, does Jesus say, this is what my heart is like. This is who I am at heart. Heart was not the muscle. It wasn't even uh, just the place of one's emotions. It was the center of a person's entire being. It defined who they were. It was about what a person was about. It was their very essence. So here in chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus speaks these words, verse 28. Come to me, all you, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden, paradoxically, is light. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest, shalom, for your souls. Take my yoke upon you. And you probably know that a yoke, in that day we don't have yokes, but in that day a yoke was a large wooden apparatus that was attached to the shoulders of two beasts of burden, two cattle, two mules, two donkeys, two horses, by which they could together pull a plow, working together, plow a field, work the field. 
And so Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And here in chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is inviting people, you and me, to attach ourselves to him, to be united with him through this visual image of a yoke because he knows that we can't do the work on our own. We can't pull the plow on our own. We don't have the strength. We don't have the stamina. We don't have the goodness, the will, the fortitude, or anything, at least on our own. And so Jesus says, join me, join with me. We can do this together. You can do this with me. You who are weary and tired and burdened and weak and dilapidated and spent and lacking in every way, you poor souls. He's not denigrating them or condemning them or crushing it. Just speak in reality. Come to me. Be united with me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke for you will be easy because I'm doing basically all of the work. The heavy lifting. And Jesus, God, that's how he is. Gentle and humble in heart. Instead of taking a place on top of an animal, is down there doing the work. I could never imagine actually being united in any way with God and Christ growing up, and I think for much of my life, and probably still in some ways on some days, because God is holy. God's upright, pure, righteous, and maybe in his perfection also discriminating unable to coexist with my darkness. How can darkness, the scriptures say, how can darkness and light coexist? And so how can my darkness and God's perfect radiance or glory coexist, be yoked together? It's not possible. And yet, Jesus says, not only is it possible, but it is his way. Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, written during this particularly dark, like six, seven years, particularly dark season in his life that was filled with despair and hopelessness and sometimes even depression. Uh, Nowen writes uh, this book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, in which he wrote these words. There are many other voices, voices that are loud, full of promises and very seductive. These voices say, go out and prove that you are worth something. Soon after Jesus had heard the voice calling him the beloved at his baptism, he was led to the desert to hear those other voices. They told him to prove that he was worth love and being successful and popular and powerful. Those same voices are not unfamiliar to me, now in writes. They are always there and always they reach into those inner places where I question my own goodness and doubt my self-worth. They suggest that I am not going to be loved without my having earned it through determined efforts and hard work, which he could do. They want me to prove to myself and others that I am worth being loved and they keep pushing me to do everything possible to gain acceptance. They deny loudly that love is totally a free gift. I leave home every time I lose faith in the voice that calls me the beloved. And I follow the voices that offer a great variety of ways to win the love I most desire and much desire. Continuing a few pages later and immersing himself deeper in Jesus' story 
And in some ways, this metaphor about the lost son of the prodigal son now in rights. Although claiming my true identity as a child of God, I still live as though the God to whom I'm returning demands an explanation. Remember the story of the prodigal son. I still think about his love as conditional. And about home as a place I am not yet fully sure of. While walking home, I keep entertaining doubts about whether I will be truly welcome when I get there. As I look at my spiritual journey, my long and fatiguing trip home, I see how full it is of guilt about the past and worries about the future. I realize that my failures are failures and know that I have lost the dignity of my sonship, but I am not yet able to fully believe that where my failings are great, grace is always greater. Still clinging to my sense of worthlessness, I project for myself a place far below that which belongs to the son. Like now and but in the words of uh, an author and pastor, Dane Orland, many of us also think in the same way, I think, or maybe it's just me. How could I mess up that bad again? Surely God's patience is wearing thin with me. I know God loves me, but I sense that he probably may also be disappointed with me. I've told others about God's love and Jesus, and yet I wonder if he harbors just a little resentment toward me. I wonder if I've shipwrecked my life beyond what can be repaired. Certainly, I've permanently diminished my usefulness to God. As fallen and anxious sinners, we have no trouble conjuring up theoretical conversations with God or with Jesus in which the Lord pushes us away. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways, Jesus. I know, he responds. You, Lord, know more than what others see, but there's this perversity down inside of me that's hidden from everyone. I know that too. It's not just my past, it's my present too. I know, I know, I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. I doubt that I can, I have some doubts about that. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help, actually, Jesus says. The burden is really heavy and seemingly heavier all the time. And Jesus replies, then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My defenses are directed not only at others, but also against you. That I'm the one who's in the best position to forgive. But there's more ugliness in me that you'll discover the sooner you'll get fed up with me as you discover it. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast away. In the words of the former priest, uh, in some ways who failed as a priest, Brennan Manning, in his must-read book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, For those who fear their lives are a grave disappointment to God, it requires enormous trust and reckless raging confidence to accept that the love of Jesus Christ knows no shadow of alteration or change. When Jesus said, come to me, all you who are labor, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, he assumed that we would grow weary, discouraged and disheartened along the way. These words are touching testimony to the genuine love of Jesus, Manning writes. And elsewhere, 
The sinners to whom Jesus directed his messianic ministry were not those who simply skipped morning devotions or skipped going to church periodically on Sunday. His ministry was to those whom society considered real sinners. They had done nothing to merit salvation, yet they opened themselves to the gift that was offered to them by him. It can be difficult for some people to imagine that God could or would come and dwell with them or in them and invite him to dwell with them and in him. And yet that's exactly what Jesus promises in John chapter 15, exactly what he invites people, and exactly what he calls people to. And what he says is necessary if one wants to bear fruit. Later, Jesus promises, after Jesus departs, after crucifixion and resurrection, that he would send his spirit, his spirit himself in person, not to hover over people like the spirit hovered over the deep at the beginning or like we envision on Pentecost, just this hovering above. But the spirit came to indwell God's people. We'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks when we get to Pentecost. The point for now is that Jesus invites us, even calls us to a union with him, to be united with him. The basis of which is love and the fruit of which is love in which we are loved and in which we live in love and by which we're prompted or empowered to love. Sort of the nature and the basis of the relationship. Not goodness, not performance, not merit, not worthiness but the love of the Father. Back to John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. It's not that God's mad. This is just what happens in a vineyard. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it'll be done for you. As the Father has loved me, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, to lay down his life for one's friends. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love one another. Where did that come from? Where did all that love come from? Several times this year, I have uh, quoted Dallas Willard in his reference to the church as a community of prayerful love, a community of prayerful love. But in reality, that phrase, which Willard uses in reference to the church, doesn't apply only to the church, and maybe not even first to the church, but it applies first and primarily to God himself, who exists somehow mysteriously as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a community of continual and abundant and overflowing love. And into that existence or reality or life of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we have all been invited and are continually invited. 
Go to church, that's fine. Read your Bible, that's fine. Say a prayer, that's fine. All of those things are good. All of those things are good, but Jesus' overarching invitation is to uh, enter into this union with him, the one who is love, and to fully dwell somehow mysteriously in him and to allow him to dwell in us. In us. Like most of us don't have categories for that. Most of our Christian faith, I think, isn't like that, where there's this dwelling with and in and by each other. But to such a life, it turns out, God invites us in Jesus. And not just when we celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist on Sunday morning, but every day, all of the time. He comes to us in love, not because we're worthy, not because we're good, not because we're merited, not because we're smart, not because we're educated, not because we have a good job or look good or live in the right place or any of those things. But because we're weary and tired and burdened and can't do it ourselves, and he is love. What is the greatest and the final characteristic trait, attribute of God? Is it wrath? Is it holiness? Is it justice? It seems to be love. And into such, he invites you and me in this mystical union that we can't always understand, but to which we are always invited. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to understand and to live into that to which you invite us. And to a life that's infused with and permeated by yourself, and your love that's powered by your spirit who loves. We open ourselves to you and ask that you would enter into us again and again and again. Fill us. Dwell within us. Abide with us. Remain with us. And help us to remain in you to abide in you, to live in and by and with you, to make our dwelling not in an apartment or a condo or a tent or a house, as much as in you. These things we ask, not fully understanding, but with hope and confidence and gratitude. In the name of Jesus, amen.